It's so easy to look around us and see stuff that we don't like. And, and as I think of moms, and, and uh, it's so easy to look at your kids and saying, this is not how it's supposed to go. And forget that, yeah, it is. You know, I, I, uh, we are going on our 31st year in ministry. And as I think about the conversations I've had, it seems like, you know, for a lot of us, man, that day when our kids get saved, that's so exciting, isn't it? At a young age, God willing. And then uh, they go to camp and they commit themselves to the Lord and we baptize them. And then we sort of anticipate, even though we know in our head better, we anticipate a straight line from five years old to pure holiness. <laughs> Although we've never experienced that. And then our kids start struggling and you kind of look at your husband and you say, look what you have done to our kids. Uh, and then late at night, in the middle of the night, you wonder what you did to your kids. Um, you know, it's, it's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to forget that what we sing is true. God is on his throne. It is still good. No matter how crazy it looks, God is still sovereign, and we can rest in that. We can rest in that. Uh, good song. All right, so let's jump right into our text today. James chapter 4, verses 11 to 17. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you're criticizing and judging, judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not judge whether it applies to you. God alone, who gave the law, is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Look here, you who say today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and we'll make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Your life is like a morning fog. It's here a little while, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. Otherwise, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans. And such boasting is, look at that word, evil? Remember, it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not to do it. What a... What a lousy <laughs> six verses. I mean, this is kind of intense. He's telling us not to judge others, not to look around us and compare. And that's one thing. We kind of all get that. But then he goes on to tell us not to make, not, not to say, uh, set plans in stone and depend on those plans because God could change them. And he calls that kind of life evil. I mean, we live in America. And to make it even more intense, we live in Texas. An American Protestant work, work ethic is God helps those who help themselves. This is an intense passage of Scripture. And, and, and to just look at these sections of verses, as is often is done, you get two things out of it. Don't judge other people and don't make plans. Or when you do, make sure, if God wills it, is at the end of those plans, as if that solves the problem that James is addressing. But like everything else in Scripture, it is super important that we figure out what's really being said. What's the intention of James when he writes this? What, what is he really concerned about? Is he concerned that we're not finishing our sentences with proper biblical grammar? Is he concerned that we look around at people around us all the time and just trash them? Is that really his concern, or is he concerned with more? As we begin to look at this text this morning, I want to remind you that except for some wisdom literature in the Old Testament, that would be Proverbs, Psalms, uh, some of Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature from the Old Testament, not all of it, but some of it, every verse in this book is written within a context of a chapter, of a section of a book, of a book as a whole that's trying to teach a message. And if you want to understand why James is going after these two things, you have to understand the context in which, uh, in which that is written. Uh, one, of the problems in, uh, one of the problems with modern devotionals since way back in the 60s is devotions that many of us grew up on, like the Daily Bread, is that the Daily Bread takes a verse that fits the thought that the author has to say, a story that maybe they had, it tells a story, and then it adds a verse at the bottom, and we all walk away saying that we've met with God. Now, that might be nice, but little sermonettes out of versinettes, or whatever you want to call it, out of section X, miss the point. There is a point to why something's being written, which is why I tell you that it's incumbent upon you to not just know the Scriptures, but actually study them. 
The most important thing, and I, I, as, I, as I continue on ministry and I start to get old, <laughs> I know, I'm hearing from those of you who are 52 telling me I'm not old yet, but the most important thing that I really offer you on a regular basis isn't, isn't an exposition of the text, but actually showing you how to handle the text. That's the most important thing. By the time we're at the end of a letter, nobody's more bored with that letter than me because it keeps saying the same thing. And the reason I keep pointing out it's saying the same thing is because it's saying the same thing. There's a context in which it's written. And if you don't get the context, you're going to have denominations all claiming verses to say their own thing that their particular denomination says. And I've got news for you. If we take some time and we study, if we study a verse within its context, it's not that controversial. You can actually discover why James wrote this letter. Remember Paul's exhortation to young Pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. And you'll notice that I put this verse in the King James Version because it's actually the closest to what he was saying. Study to shew thyself. <laughs> that's, that's old English. That was supposed to be funny right there. I, I had a note. <laughs> Study to show thyself approved unto God. Okay, so he's writing to a young pastor, young Pastor Timothy of Ephesus, who's freaking out because older men and women don't like his leadership and he doesn't know how to develop the church. So he writes this letter to encourage him. What am I supposed to do, Paul? What am I supposed to do? Number one, drink a little wine. You need to relax. Second of all, study to show yourself approved unto God. Study. It's what we do. If I hire a carpenter to build a room onto my house, he better know how to use a hammer, right? And, and just, I, I know that we really like, guys like me, like to reach into the Old Testament and make it sound like we're uniquely anointed for this, and I have no doubt that my gift set fits this, of shepherding. That's a unique gift set, but I want to make it clear that my gifts are no more usable to the kingdom than your gifts. This is just my gift, and my gift requires that I understand what it is I'm doing, just like your gift does. And what does my gift say? Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who needeth not be ashamed. There's a lot of preachers who need to be embarrassed, but they're too naive to know better. Rightly dividing the word of truth. And as the shepherd of your family, the daily bread doesn't teach truth. It teaches truth at little, little happy moments. The problem with the daily bread is sometimes people do die of cancer. And there aren't verses that tell you how to have comfort when you're dying of cancer. The reality is that life is hard and difficult, and God has answers to those things if we'll simply understand from the Scriptures. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Having said that, today's passage in James 4, 11 to 17 this morning, is kind of eye-popping. I mean, it, it, it actually makes total sense in light of James 4, 7 to 10, the verses right before it, which is actually the key application point that, that James is, it wants his readers to understand. Of every verse in James, from James 1, 1 to the last verse in James chapter 5, I would argue that the application of this letter is simple and found in these few verses. So humble yourselves before God. What does the word so mean? It means because of everything else I've said, because I've pointed out some things, some blind spots in your life, because of all the things I've said up to this point, here's what I want you to do. Humble yourselves before God. I want you to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Now you know the problem. Very clear. What's he worried about? That my loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. He will lift you up. As we have seen through the first three and a half chapters of this letter, James is concerned that his readers are not fully loyal to God. They're, they're not even aware of their divided loyalty. That's what, what, what you need to understand. Last week, I began making a point that I'm going to really drive home over the coming weeks. Carnal, half-hearted Christianity has always been a problem for the church. And much of the time, we don't even know we're half-hearted. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at the letter to Corinth, and I, and I, I made this last week, you're going to get bored of it because I wanted to drill it home. We just finished studying First and Second Corinthians. And those were only two of what we believe were four letters that he wrote to them. And it represents like three other visits. So somewhere between seven or eight contacts with this church called Corinth, Paul keeps telling them, I cannot believe the immorality that's among you as believers. He doesn't question their Christianity, but they are doing stuff that you and I couldn't even fathom doing in a church or being a part of a church that did those things. Classic, really sick Christianity. 
blatant things that they should have known better about. It's so bad that Paul says, I'm not going to visit. I didn't come visit you this one time because I'm tired of yelling at you. James isn't like that. James is dealing with a church that thinks she's healthy, of individual Christians who are actually saying that we're spiritual leaders and they're blind in so many areas and they don't get it. I actually believe the church in this country is very much like the church James is writing to. Look, the church in this country, the evangelical church, is pretty pure-hearted. It's pretty pure-hearted. They don't, no matter what you read on Facebook, most evangelical churches don't take sin lightly. Some of us choose to, uh, to, to the message of grace, which is what we believe we're called to teach. But it's not that we take sin lightly. The fact is, most evangelical churches are right on the mark doctrinally. The problem with most evangelical churches, though, is they're full of disloyal pastors, elders, deacons, and congregants. Because it's so hard to stay focused and trust. That's the problem. Your soul has been purified. You are right with God if you've accepted his offer to forgive you. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You stand before him pure and holy. But James is about going, now that you're, now that you're solid in that, now that the Holy Spirit's been given to you, put it on. Put on practical righteousness. Now we need to shave off the edges of us that still lack uh, deep surrender. That's what this letter is about. That's why James 4.10 is the perfect summary statement for the whole letter. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. He is attempting to make this point that the reason that we react or his readers react the way they do, the reason that they don't have control of their tongue, the reason that they, that, that they don't have joy in tribulation, knowing that it's good, life is full of tribulation. The reason that the poor are envying the rich and the rich are envying the poor among Christendom. The reason all those things are happening is because they are not surrendered fully to the Lord. They are not fully, uh, they are not fully invested in God's plan around them and through them. They, we want both. They want both. Eternal life and physical life. And Jesus was clear. If you want to be my faithful disciple, you're going to have to pick up your cross, put your selfish ambition aside, and follow me. The reason the evangelical church today is often a joyless church is because we want happy, good, and God. And the truth is, Jesus was clear when he said, if you love me and if you walk with me, they're going to hate you just like they hated me. That's just a fact, and we struggle with that. The problem is that we feel responsible to actually lift ourselves up, to be liked, to be appreciated, to be revered, to be seen wise and spiritual people, to be loved and treated fairly as we see and define that. We keep seeking. We do love the Lord. I am so tired of being told by people this week that if I didn't vote for the right person, I'm either not a Christian or I'm not a serious person. They have no right. Well, we'll get into that in a moment because this speaks to that. This text speaks to that. The fact is that my walk with God is very personal. It's very intimate. And it should be protected from the joy that comes with that and the peace that comes with that from culture, society, and the goodness or badness of my flock or the goodness or badness of my marriage or the goodness or badness of my health. Because joy comes, real joy, not happiness, but real joy comes from knowing that my cancer results in God's plan coming to fruition and going home. Well, that's ridiculous. Humanly speaking, it is, but not spiritually. It is possible to have joy in tribulation. But you've got to be fully invested that your father reigns. You just sang it. And if we could get to the place where we could convince our flesh that that's true, we will have joy in our martyrdom. We will have peace that passes understanding, supernatural, Holy Spirit-given effect on our lives. It is an incredible thing that James is talking about here. And this actually isn't unique to James. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, tells us that Jesus went first in this attitude. I want to make it clear that God is never asking you and I to do something that he has not already done through his son Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. 
And let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Now pause, okay? Because we are type A American, I want three bullet points to help me overcome sin. What that means to us is, if I could just see Jesus, I would live a sin-free life. I would be more faithful. I wouldn't get tripped up. That's not true because even the disciples got tripped up. It's not a physical seeing of Jesus. It's keeping your eyes on him as your example. It's not, it's, it's, as I said last week, it's not, uh, or the last two weeks, we keep asking WWJD, what would Jesus do in my circumstances? And you know, the problem is that subjects itself to me defining who Jesus is and how he would function in this culture. In other words, I can say anything I want about that. If I'm more liberal, I say liberal things. If I'm more conservative, I make him a conservative guy. If I'm a Republican, God's a Republican. And if I'm a Democrat, God's a Democrat. And the thing is that we don't have to say, what, what would Jesus do? We can actually study the scriptures, show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, and ask the better question, what did Jesus do? Because his culture was actually a hundred times more immoral than our culture. His was more violent than we can imagine. And Jesus Christ was more humiliated and more harshly treated than you and I could ever possibly imagine. He went first. If we humble ourselves before the Lord, Jesus did too. Look at this. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy, and this is what he's talking about, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. What did the cross entail? Shame. He disregarded the shame. When Jesus hung on the cross, it was a shameful experience. It was humiliating. He was mocked. He was in pain, emotional and physical. But he did it for the joy set before him. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. He humbled himself. Let, let me be very clear this morning. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross was not because he loves you. He died on the cross because his daddy told him to. For God the Father so loved the world. I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love you, but we got this a little bit wrong. Jesus died on the cross. In fact, I could make the case that Jesus pushed back on dying on the cross. He actually said in his prayer, take this cup for me. Father, if there's any other way to save these lousy people, do it but not my will, yours be done. Whose will was it that Jesus died? Whose plan was it? Who is the one, and what is the reason Jesus did what he didn't want to do? Because he was here to obey. He humbled himself before the Father and now sits at the right hand. If you want to see the specifics on that, look at Philippians chapter 2, where it tells us exactly what he did. And look at how it starts. This is interesting. This is about, this is the passage that we look at to see Jesus coming and being a man. But I want to remind you how it starts in, sec, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ has. Just let that sink in. Paul's instructions have the same attitude of Christ. What was his attitude? Verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God, something that he should hold on to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. Remember that word? Circle that in your brain. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God lifted him up. God then elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above every name. That every knee, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on, on the earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. As I've been saying, it's not WWJD, what would Jesus do, but what did Jesus do? And James 4.10, absolutely, in a, a nutshell, in artistic surgery, James explains it. This is what Jesus did. Jesus humbled himself before the Lord, and he was lifted up as a result. He is now seated at the right hand of, of the Father. The problem with you and I is that we are very much like Jesus going, take this cup for me. Only we don't end that sentence with, but not my will, yours be done. We go, please, really. What I need to do is learn how to pray better. Because if I prayed better, God would answer my prayers every time. 
What I need to do is I need to do more whatever. We fill in the gap. I need to work harder. I need to figure it out. When in reality, sometimes God puts his people on the cross. God has a stone to death. Sometimes God allows our culture to self-destruct so that people would realize that immorality only leads to self-destruction and God's children who are suffering through this actually can tell people about hope. We have begun, we, we believe to some degree that if people will simply be moral, their lives will be good. And here's the problem with that. There is a generation of believers that actually have become more impassioned for the morality of the church than the surrender of the church. And just to be clear, morality without surrender makes you Mormon. Morality without surrender makes you a cultic. It makes you a Muslim. You're trying to beg God through good behavior to find mercy on you. Genuine biblical Christianity and what James is trying to say is, look, since he's taken care of everything, brothers and sisters, 12 times in five chapters, he refers to them as brothers and sisters. Since he's done this for you, you should humble yourselves before him and let him lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. I want to take a, a moment and I want us to pray. I want us to ask God to help us see how unhumble we have become as Christians in this culture. Lord Jesus, we have, a, we have a, a, a performance in three acts that we call Sunday morning church, and too often we come and we dress up at our best and we get to see each other and we hug each other. and We go through a routine, Father, but we don't realize that the Holy Spirit speaks to us inside, and you are speaking to us right now. This book has been so powerful. I thank you for the confidence of grace. I thank you for the confidence of acceptance. I thank you for the confidence of the Holy Spirit. We are your children. But I thank you for the Holy Spirit's promptings that say, I want more. I want more of you. If you want peace, if you want joy, if you want to be faithful to the task, then you're going to have to be like Jesus. Father God, I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us as we continue through this text this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This verse, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up to honor. James already anticipates the response of his readers to this instructions. And so he doubles down on their brokenness, on their blindness. And that's found in verses 11 and 12. He addresses yet another problem that they're having, another attack that they're making, another, another, um, another self-righteous mistake. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? These are lots of words. and to, so, the, the English of this is confusing, and, and, and it sounds like, well, is he telling me to keep the law? Is he telling me not to keep the law? I thought in first, 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians, he tells me to judge my brothers and sisters. The summary of this is found in James 4.12. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? neighbor? At the end of John's gospel, Okay? You're going to remember this story that, that actually kind of echoes this kind of living. Jesus has breakfast for Peter and the disciples. And after breakfast, they get up. You're familiar with this text. I talk about it all the time because it's one of my favorite. And, and I think it's very pivotal. But Jesus starts taking a walk with Peter. Uh, with, Jesus takes a walk with Peter. And as they're walking, Jesus asks Peter that famous question, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Oh, I love you. Yes. Then feed my children. Do you love me, Peter? And it says that the third time he became very emotional. You know I love you. Why do you keep asking me this? You know everything. And Jesus says, then feed my little lambs. And then Jesus and Peter continue their walk. And this is a fascinating part of the story. It goes on to tell us that Jesus says to Peter, Peter, there was a day when you could decide what you wear, which, where you go, what you do. But that day is now over. For, for the rest of your life, you're going to be told what to do by others. And it says that Jesus went on to tell him, about these things so that he knew how he would die. So basically, we are told that Jesus explains to Peter about his coming death, that he's going to be crucified. Do you remember Peter's response? Somebody remind me. What did Peter say? What about John? That is what James is talking about. What about John? 
And what does Peter, Jesus say to him? Peter, it's none of your business. I'm his master. My father has control. I'm telling you about you. I'm not telling you about him at all. You see, when we're scared, when we're uneasy, we have a tendency based upon our culture and context and our upbringing to find comfort in certain legalisms. Maybe church, maybe a hymn, a type of music, maybe a clothing that you wear. It may be lots of things. We find comfort in that. And when we find ourselves surrounded by other people who do not have the same, God has not spoken to them in the same way, we find ourselves angry with those people. And we begin judging them. How could anybody wear shorts to church? I mean, I don't want to be a judge, but come on. Just so you know, when you say, I don't want to be a judge, and go on to judge, you're still judging. This is funny, and, and I don't want to get you to stop, but I, this is kind of funny. When people call me on Saturday mornings, that phone call 99.9% .9 of the time starts with, I hate to bother you on Saturday, to which I always say, but you're going to anyway, aren't you? I mean, we, we think that if we end in the South, ladies, if we end in the so South, bless her heart, everything we set up to that point wasn't really a slam. I mean, you're actually feeling compassionate that she eats too many donuts. Or that her son is stupid as a hoe handle. Bless his heart. The fact is, you still slammed him. And gossip, when wrapped in prayer, is still gossip. And sometimes, we, with good intentions, relieve ourselves of our stress by trashing other people who don't live the way we do because we don't like the way we're living, but we're doing it for God and we're miserable over it. So how can they not be miserable over it? Doggone it, that's not right. So we find other people that agree with us. We get in a circle and we tell each other what we don't like about all the rest of the stupid people who aren't faithful. And to that, James is clear. Verse 12, God alone is the judge who gave the law. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? I found out this week that if I vote for Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, or anybody else except Glenn Beck, or not Glenn Beck, except Ted Cruz, that Glenn Beck knows that I'm probably not truly a Christian. To which James says, what right do you have to judge your neighbor? I'm the judge. The church does it all the time. The church says things like, if you're not a Republican, if you're not fill in the blank. Now, we are clear on what is right and what is wrong. That's, that's not the point. Purity, morality, those are all clear in Scripture. But when we begin to tell others what a true Christian looks like, and it has nothing to do with the fruit of the Spirit, we have overstepped our boundaries. You see, the Scripture, and this is what we talked about three or four weeks ago, the Scripture is clear on how you know if somebody's saved or not. Remember, we went through 1 John chapter 4. It, it gives you examples. What do people say about Jesus Christ? Do they believe that he is the sent one from God? Or is he just a prophet? If he, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the sent one from God, he's, they're the Antichrist. Not only that, but what do they believe about the apostles' teaching? If they deny the scriptures, they're not a child of God. Very clear, 1 John says that. Then he goes into the fruit of your life. If you claim to be a child of God, but you don't love the church, you're not his child. Sorry about that. 1 John 4, just read it. It's right in there. There's like five things. If you claim to be a child of God and you hate the world, then you're not like your Jesus. These are all in 1 John. Not only that, but you have Galatians chapter 5 that tells us what the fruit of the Spirit's presence are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and long-suffering. If you have no evidence of any of those in your life, even if you prayed the prayer or walked an aisle in an Assemblies of God church, or at a revival, or at a Billy Graham conference, you have every right to question whether, you're not sa whether or not you're saved. Why? Because the difference between a child of God and a person who's not a child of God, according to Romans 8, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons why I don't do altar calls on Sunday morning is because people assume that that is, a, uh, that, that is the thermostat by which we judge God's work. It's not. That's not how you judge whether or not God's working. 
You know, even in history, what happens is you've got a church of 100 people and everybody's saved, but we have an altar call because we always have an altar call. And then when people don't come forward, so we open the door to membership because you don't really know why they came forward. So at least somebody came forward. And let me tell you, the church I grew up in was a couple thousand people and they started having the counselors. Remember the counselors standing up in front while we sang 35 verses of Just As I Am? Do you remember the counselors used to start at the front of the church and then all of a sudden not enough people were coming so we had to chum the audience. So we sent them to the back of the room so that they could walk up and they would walk up very serene and they would stand up there and nobody knew whether they were... The visitors didn't know whether they were getting saved or not because what we wanted is the visitors to get saved. That's all fine and good, but a prayer never saves anybody. You see, this is a transformation from the inside out as a result of the blood of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's presence. That's, I mean, that's what this is. This isn't a Baptist thing or an Assemblies thing or a Bible church thing. It's a God thing. And the way we react, the way that James people are reacting, this isn't a God thing. It's a thing that's dependent upon us. I am obsessed with Ted Cruz's run for the office. Do you know why? I've never heard so much heresy in my life. It blows my mind. From his dad, who is an evangelical, saying that he is the anointed one, the prophet, who will take the money that the poor, from all this country and give it to the rich people, the godly people, and make them rich as God's promised blessings on the earth. In case you're not clear, that's cult teaching. To the guy on the other side of the stage who's a Mormon saying he's the prophet that we've always been waiting for in the Mormon church who is going to uphold the constitution of this great country who Jesus Christ came to save. Are you kidding me? That has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. You see, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit exist in Iraq, in Iran, in Syria. People got saved at the higher echelons of Hitler's evil guard. At the Nuremberg trials, history tells us that there was a Lutheran pastor that would go in and minister to many of the people that you know their names from Hogan's Heroes. And some got saved. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which Paul said he is the worst. And we've turned this into a moral deism where God is dependent upon us. I read yesterday where Glenn Beck finally said that now we're going to get what we deserve. God will never, ever forgive us for putting anybody but Cruz in office. To that, James says, verse 12, chapter 4, God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? And let me remind you, oh, friends who are worried about the election, Nebuchadnezzar was God-chosen man, and Babylon was an evil nation. And it's one of the greatest things that ever happened to the nation of Israel. God uses wickedness. And to the dismay of some, I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved as a result of it. That's why we're going to Jonah next. Under the new title of, Here Am I, Send Somebody Else. The, the fact is that you're here this morning, living at this time, in this amazingly wonderful and like, adventurous time of history because this is exactly what God created you to do. Well, I don't like it. Okay, Jonah. I, you know, it's, it's just incredible to me how whiny we are as a church. Do, do you realize how wonderful it is to live at such a time as this? Actually, listen to the church. God's refining us right now. There's going to be this huge division between people who believe that, that, that it, is, it is America we're to save versus those of us who believe that it's people that need to be saved. It's a wonderful problem to have. In case you're not clear, the moral majority is a failure. It didn't work. It was bound to fail. Because any time anyone thinks that the legal system of a country can make people moral, you haven't read the Old Testament. Jesus Christ was the king of the nation of Israel. He wrote a law. He had a pillar of smoke at the day that told them where to put the tabernacle. And at night, when it was time to move, it turned into a pillar of fire, and it rose up and it led them. Moses stood at the edge of the Red Sea, surrounded by Egyptian military, and the people going, you brought us out of Egypt to kill us. And, and he's, he's praying, dear God, he's doing what we're doing. Dear God, save us from the Egyptians. Does anybody remember what God said to him? Stop praying and walk. Oh, but I got to pray. 
Just walk. Where do you want me to walk? Walk into the water. You want to know what God wants you to do? Walk into the water. You got nothing to lose. Oh, I, I need to use the bathroom. I know. You can use the bathroom at Office Max. It's okay. It's okay. Walk. But we're surrounded by fill in the blank. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And in due time, he will lift you up. He will. He will lift you up. Do we still believe? Do we still believe? We have brothers and sisters in India right now who give everything. There's a group of people every, every year uh, that go for three weeks uh, of pastors, these, these little skinny Indian men. And uh, love and care, gather them together and pray for a week. And they literally get bikes for each of them and they take them to the edge of the jungle and they tell them to ride their bikes into the jungle and tell anybody about Jesus they can. I asked uh, Yeshu Potam one year if I could go and he said, no, they'd kill you. I said, thanks, I'm going back to the States. But the fact is that that's what we do. We get on our bikes and we ride into San Francisco and Austin and Nacogdoches and Lufkin and we go to Target and Sears and we just tell people about Jesus. What about America? Vote. I, I vote. What more would you like me to do? You want me to scream more? You should talk about the gay agenda more. What do you want me to say that everybody in this room doesn't already know? Is that what we're supposed to do? Oh, it's falling apart. Yeah, it is. Next question. Jesus said it was going to fall apart. And guess who's going to ride in on a white horse to save it? Jesus Christ. He's going to. The question is whether or not when he comes, we go, I knew it was going to come. I knew it. Told you he would. I don't even recognize you. So let me usurp the next question that somebody's going to ask me this week. So you think we should just roll over and let it happen? Nah. Vote. Run for office. I have an idea. You don't like Target's policy. Don't boycott Target. Why don't you write to the CEO and say, can we sit down? I've got 100 people. Maybe together we can come up with a plan that'll work. No, I'd rather scream. Okay. Seriously. I mean, just think. I know, I know some of you disagree with that. That's okay. Not once have I said you shouldn't boycott, but what I said is you should make sure that while boycotting, you can still, still fulfill your mandate, which is to share Christ with immoral people. This is just going swimmingly. It's exactly what you knew would happen. And here's the cool part. You were chosen to live through it. Here's the not-so-cool part. I was chosen to pastor through it. You know what my job is? Just to say it's going to be fine. Yeah, but we lost half our church to murder and martyrdom. It's still going to be fine. Don't you ever freak out? Not at the pulpit. I just don't want to be on a ship in the middle of a storm and having the captain going, oh, I don't know what to tell you. It's really bad. It's coming over the side of the board. We'll lead it to the left. Everybody run to the right. Now run to the left. Now run to the right. We're going to drown. <laughs> okay. It's the fault of the guy in the base of the boat. That's why we're drowning. I want a captain that goes, you know what? We got plenty of lifeboats. And for those of you who don't make it to a lifeboat, we got these little goofy orange things you're going to be wearing. And the rest of you, we believe in the circle of life. You're going to become fish food, but don't worry, you'll come back. <laughs> there is a, a movie we just watched. Uh, Tom Hanks, uh, huh? Bridge of Spies. Anybody see it? I know most of my theology comes from movies. I, you know, it's, it's an interesting movie. It's a true story, but basically a Russian spy during the Soviet area gets captured, and it's, it's pure evidence that he's guilty, and Tom Hanks is chosen to represent him as his lawyer, and basically the guy's going to get executed, and Tom Hanks is meeting with this guy, and as you can imagine, he's just a painter. He's an artist. He's drawing, and Tom Hanks finally says to him, aren't you freaked out? Doesn't this scare you? And he looks up over his glasses and said, would it help? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's a great line, about six times in the movie. Every time he starts to panic, Tom Hanks, and gets emotionally overdrawn, would it help? You and I have been chosen for such a time as this, and if we are completely invested in the loyalty and, and loyalty to God's plan over our own, I'm not saying you're not going to be scared or it's not going to get weird. I'm simply saying, does panicking help? How are we doing with that? Maybe instead of panicking, we should drink a little wine for our stomach and have dinner together and tell our neighbors about Jesus. You know, if we would have invested all that money in actually building relationships with our neighbors during the moral majority era, we might actually have a different culture. If we would have reached our non-moral neighbors for Christ, maybe things would have been different. But to actually go to Washington and try to legislate morality doesn't work. It never did work. Because while we thought it was working, we were still enslaving people because of the color of their skin. Oh, but you know, except for that, it was pretty good, unless you were an Indian. Yeah, except for those two little things. Well, unless you were rumored to be a witch up northeast. See, the truth is, legislating morality didn't work in Israel, and it's not going to work in this country. You know what will work? People knowing Jesus. And you know what will work for you and I? Humbling ourselves before the Lord so he can lift us up in due time. Trusting him. Taking that nesty plunge in faith. But as you can imagine, he doesn't end there. Look at verses 13 to 15, which is personally more frustrating. Look here, you who say, today or tomorrow we're going to a certain town and we'll stay there a year. We will do business there and make a profit. How do you know what your life will be like tomorrow? Would you stop it, James? Just stop it. What do you want to do, sit in a room? You see, your life is like a morning fog. It, it's here a little while, then, when it, then it's gone. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wants us to, we will live and do this or that. I, I want to wrestle with James and say, what's wrong with saying I'm going to do this or that? And the answer is nothing. What's wrong is when we start boasting about our pretentious plans and leave the fact out that Jesus Christ may have different plans. He, he has a different plan. I'm having a conversation right now with somebody who's decided not to have children. And the reason is, is because the world is too dark. And we're going to get to the point where I explain to this young man that God never released you from that responsibility, so have children. What? You sound Catholic. We don't stop living because we're afraid. We don't, cease, we don't cease to do anything. Remember, when the Jews were captured and taken into Babylonian slavery, that's where Jeremiah comes in. Remember that verse we always take out of context every graduation service? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Look at the context of that. Basically, Jesus, uh, our God, tells the Jews, here's what I want you to do while you're in captivity because they stopped getting married and having babies. They were going to wait till they went back to Israel. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to plant gardens. I want you to grow those vegetables up. I want you to actually get married, and I want you to have kids, and I want you to celebrate their marriage, and I want you to have grandkids for as long as I have you in this land. Because I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. That's the context of that. Well, I don't see how we're going to get out of Babylon if we don't. It was never up to you to figure it out anyway. He's our daddy. Didn't it drive you crazy when your children kept saying, tell me where we're going, daddy? It's a surprise, honey. Tell me where we're going, Daddy. It's a surprise, honey. Tell me where we're going, Daddy. Shut up! Shut up. We're going to Lowe's. Just relax. It's going to be okay. What if the ship sinks? We're going to learn how to swim. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. We're going to value this a lot more. Because this will be the only safe place of our week. What if they come in here? They're already here. Speak the truth. Have hope. Well, how do I do that? I'm so scared. By putting all of your eggs in his basket. Putting all of your eggs in his basket. Actually saying, okay, sweetie, this is how we're going to make ends meet. I'm going to go, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to get a job. But to be honest with you, I don't know what the Lord's got planned, but we're going to do our best. Because he's not saying sit in a room and just wait. I've heard that. I'll just wait. The whole, the whole letter to the church of Thessalonica was built on that wrong thinking. Did you know that? Don't you love context? The Christians in Thessalonica, half of the church was so believing that God was going to return in the, the coming weeks or days or years that they stopped working. So he wrote a letter saying, I love you guys. You are so faithful to God. I'm so proud of you. 
Now stop stealing from each other and get back to work. It's the New Testament version of what has he told you? Do justly, love mercy, and humbly walk with God. What does God want from you today? Do justly, love mercy, and humbly walk with God. What does God want from you this afternoon? He does not want you to pick at Target. I don't think. He wants you to enjoy Mother's Day. He wants you to enjoy Mother's Day. And do it in your backyard with loud music. So that your neighbors look over the fence and when they do, offer them a hamburger. Offer them lemonade. And you know what they might say? I don't drink none of that stuff, but I do like a good beer now and then. Well, I don't have any beer. Why don't you grab some and come over? I don't have enough for both. I'm not drinking today. But you can. You want me to have beer in my yard? Do you know what it'll do for your grass? You know what it'll do for your hair. Some of the ladies, you have to go all the way to Nacogdoches, get a brown bag, put cheap beer in there so you can wash your hair. Now, you stink like beer, but nobody's paying attention. We need to lighten up. Invite them over. Pastor, you don't understand. My neighbors are really, really out there. I mean, I've got a, I've got a toothless redneck who drinks himself into a stupor and lays unconscious on the front yard every Friday night. What will people think if I invite them over for Mother's Day? They'll think you're a friend of sinners. Now you're being like Jesus. What a compliment to be mocked like Jesus. Oh, your standards are low. That's what they said about him. You don't seem to care about the scum sin. No, I came to solve that. You see, the message of the church, remember from 2 Corinthians, is God is not counting your sins against you. Why would you want to die in your sins? That's the question of the church. You don't have to. Why would you want to? What? I've never heard it like that. Well, because God's not mad at you. He's mad about you. He loves you. He sent his son. He would rather kill his son than kill you. That's how hard he's working at saving you. Well, I don't know if I believe in all that. Yeah, well, let me tell you this. I do, and he's changed my life. And if you ever want to know him, you come over with a beer. We'll share a beer. We'll talk about Jesus. You want me to drink beer? I want you to tell people about Jesus. God wants you to tell people about Jesus. In case you're unclear, Jesus was the bartender at a wedding in Cana for his first miracle, the New Testament. <gasps> Seriously, could you stop thinking like a Christian and think like a human for a while? Jesus was radical about his investment in the lives of wicked people. And of all of the people he could have chosen to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he chose Osama bin Laden to redeem him and then to send him to us. And he wrote most of the New Testament that we've got. Paul, isn't God's mercy unbelievable? That's what makes it so amazing. And you know what? He doesn't just love them, he loves you. And he's fully aware that life's going to have trouble and difficulty and trial. But he's not letting you off the hook. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. When? Maybe when you're dead. Well, that's not a really good selling point. I don't think I like to die. <laughs> I had a snake in my hallway two weeks ago. I almost died. Um, we are wasting our life freaking out. Jesus said, come to me if you're tired and burdened. And I will give you, what's the word, Chad? Where are you? What's the word? Rest. Isn't that a beautiful word? Rest. Rest. Take my yoke upon you. There's a burden and a yoke, but it's light. He's carrying it. He's yoked you to himself. Take his yoke upon you. He'll do all the pulling. You just walk along. What did Jesus do? Mimic it. Duplicate it. All right, what do I do? Go home. Have a party. 
I believe Solomon said, eat, drink, and have fun because the work of the Lord is hard. Don't let the world dictate your joy today. When somebody starts in at lunch and says, well, I tell you what, this country's sure going to hell in a handbasket, you go, it's just okay. It's just fine. Do you know what Trump's going to do as president? He's going to walk around with the button and it's going to be aimed at Hillary. And when she says one thing, he's going to push it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Most of you would go, yeah, video that bad boy. Put it on a, <laughs> whatever. I think God can even, even handle Donald Trump. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who can save you? What God can save you from my hands? And for the first time, the boys didn't say, oh, king. They said, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar. We know that our God can save you or save us from you. But today, if he chooses not to, we want to make it abundantly clear. We won't bow. Throw him in the fire. Wait, that wasn't supposed to end that way. Shadrach, you idiot, you talk too much. <laughs> so threw him in the fire. And as Nebuchadnezzar sat there looking for the sizzle, he went, how many did you throw in? There's four in there. There's four in there. There's four in there. When you go into Target, you don't go alone. There's two of you. When you face your neighbors, you don't go alone. Don't bow. Don't bow to the church. Don't bow to politics. You bow to Jesus and find hope. God, I'm going to vote this way, and I'm praying that you save this country. But even if you choose not to, it's going to be just fine. I trust you. And it's okay to sweat, sweat drops of blood in fear. Be committed to the right thing. Be courageous. It's going to be just fine. But the ship is going down. I know, that's why I'm going to close now. Father, thank you for hope. Thank you for, thank you for promises. And you promised never to leave us nor forsake us. You promised that if we run close to you, you will come close to us. You promised that if we humble ourselves before you, you will lift us up. You promised that. Father, it's not working panicking. So every week, a little bit at a time, more and more of us say, okay, I'm going to try the other way. Help us, God, because we can't do it, out with, do it without your help. And Lord, if the ship goes down on our watch, we will trust you in the sea. In Jesus' name, amen. Two big things this week. Saturday night is a game night here. It's going to be a fundraiser for our... Uh, Guatemala mission trip? You know I don't. And then uh, Sunday afternoon, 4 o'clock next week, ladies, there's a women's event. Happy Mother's Day. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes.